We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro. I am battling what is in my mind because I'm very sensitive to ailments, a very serious, serious cold. So bear with me. But we are lucky enough to be joined by a very special, energetic guest who's joining us all the way from California. She is Katie Biber. She has very a very interesting background in policy, politics, and technology. Um, and so there's a lot we can untangle here. Anchorage, for those of you who do not know, they've raised, I think, $57 million in venture capital funding to build out this platform um, that is kind of going against the grain when you think about how most custody firms in this space operate, via, uh, whether it's cold storage, hot storage. Um, they, they refer to the incumbents as engaging in, in pirate custody. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But before we start... Um, I'd just like to have you, Katie, give a little bit of background about your career because I think our our, our listeners might not be familiar with your with your journey to the firm. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. Despite the frigid weather, it's always a pleasure to be in New York. And also, given the cold, thank you for not touching my teacup before you handed it to me. That was... I'm a, I'm a gentleman. That, that was kind of you. So um, my background is in politics. And as you guys know, Silicon Valley lore is full of stories of founders who learned to code at 14 and had stacks of O'Reilly books on their bedside table. I was the odd duck who read the newspaper at 14 and was obsessed with politics. Mm -hmm. I learned stats about members of Congress like they were baseball players and actually, I must confess, had posters of some of them on my wall in my bedroom. Um, Only the most dreamy. Only the most dreamy, right? Dick Cheney. (laughs) Dick Cheney was definitely on my wall. So uh, when I got to Washington, D.C. for college, I immediately uh, called information, which is how you got phone numbers back in the day before they were widely available on the internet, Mm -hmm. and took an internship at the Dole Kemp campaign. 
Uh, this was 1996, obviously. And your listeners will be pleased to know that one of my most important functions at the campaign was to answer the phone and, uh, and tell listeners what the campaign website was, because people would actually call us to ask where they could find the campaign website. I can still tell you it was www.dolcamp96.org. And of course, you had to get the HTTP part at the beginning because it was 1996 and no one was really exactly sure about the internet. After that, I pursued a career in politics, working on the Hill for many years, working uh, at the Republican National Committee, and then following the 2000 election, the Florida recount election, I landed at the Department of Justice, where I had the opportunity to work with Attorney General Ashcroft in the Communications Department, and then headed off to law school and pursued a career in election law after that, working for the Bush campaign in 2004, and then the Romney campaign in 2008 and 2012. Seems like not necessarily a natural next step from politics. You described yourself as a political operative, um, which is interesting. And I would love to hear some of the war stories, but another time and place. Um, it doesn't seem like a natural ne next step to go from politics to tech, but, but you think it is. It is a very natural next step. Um, both industries attract very... Uh, motivated people who are interested in working on cause-oriented issues. And really, if you think about tech companies, especially early-stage tech companies, that's really exactly what they are. In fact, uh, when I arrived at Airbnb, which is the first company I worked at in Silicon Valley, I surveyed all of the beautiful people typing on their sleek Apple equipment, and I thought to myself, I wonder if this is what the Obama campaign felt like. And uh, I suppose that's probably true. But um, there was actually an article a couple of years ago that referred to Silicon Valley as the retirement community for political operatives, and that is largely true. You see a lot of people from the Obama administration working at tech companies. You see plenty of people coming from Republican campaigns as well. It's just a similar personality set. Mm -hmm. So similar personalities, um, and, and as a result, you see the, the one group then shifting to the other. Walk us through a little bit about the role of a general counsel and what that looks like at a firm like Anchorage. What are your day-to-day -day responsibilities um, and to what degree are you engaging with the business side to make sure that what they're doing is, is up to um, the regulatory standard? Good question. So there's, there's a few important areas that a general counsel or a chief legal officer has to cover at a tech company or especially at a tech company in the crypto space. The first I would say is to set the right tone. It's really important in our highly regulated space for everybody to understand how important legal issues are. And that means conveying a certain level of seriousness surrounding these issues. And you don't want people ever to feel paralyzed, of course, but you need them to understand that these are important topics that govern the decisions we make and have to play a role in everything we build. Second, uh, of course, there's the, the aspect of interfacing with regulators. It's important for every company in this space to be constantly talking to regulators to make sure that we understand what their latest concerns are, to anticipate what the issues are going to be in the future, and to react accordingly. And then, of course, there's all of the internal work that would apply to any tech company. Um, discussing new products with product managers as they're shipped out the door, making sure that everything we build is compliant. The firm has approval from South Dakota State 
um, banking committee to operate as a as a uh, cryptocurrency custodian. The product itself is is somewhat confusing, and I think some folks might view it as a black box, if you will. Right? You are using keys for transactions, audits, staking in real time without removing assets from cold storage. You guys call it smart custody. How do you explain or communicate the fundamentals of that to a regulator in terms of getting a certain regulatory approval across the finish line? We start from the the concept, the dichotomy of cold storage and hot storage is pretty antiquated. And that's when you lose them. <laughs> <laughs> well, not not all of them. Um, you know, we've been privileged to work with the regulators in South Dakota. As you know, they've been familiar with the crypto space for some time now. They've also been a very big leader in the trust company space. So we're familiar with the concepts that we deal with. And we're very ready to dive into this new subject area with vigor. They definitely understood what we were explaining about our product. And when they issued our charter, um, you know, did not make it contingent upon anything that related to cold storage or hot storage or storing the assets in any particular way. They were satisfied with the incredible protections that our custody system offers. Mm -hmm. Now, my question is always, at the end of the day, when you have investors or larger trading firms stacking up the different solutions that are out there. Is a, not to you know, throw too much shade at South Dakota as a state, but is that enough? Is that sort of um, regulatory status strong enough in the perspective of most investors? Or are they looking for uh, something from New York State, for instance. And it's not just Wyoming, right? Uh, or excuse me, it's not just South Dakota, it's Wyoming as well. Um, there are many initiatives to try to get these different localities to be the leader in this space. But at the end of the day, right, where is the financial capital of the United States? Many would argue New York. That's right. Uh, New York definitely is the financial capital, but South Dakota is not a newcomer to the financial system. It's been a leader in the trust company space since the 70s and 80s. It's been really at the forefront of the industry. Um, in fact, it has more assets under trust than just about every other state. So it's it's been quite a player. And the division of banking is very sophisticated in the way they regulate and examine trust companies. So it's a real privilege for us to be there. Wyoming has been an interesting entrant into this competition of states as well. You know, Caitlin Long, who I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with, was really heroic in passing, helping pass multiple bills in the Wyoming legislature to help make it a very friendly place for crypto companies to do business. And I do think you'll see new entrants into that state and Wyoming really giving other states a run for its money. You really think so? No, I, I do think so. I think that regulatory clarity in this world is incredibly valuable and not only regulatory clarity but a system um, that provides more opportunity than many of the other state laws do as far as um, custody um, brokerage and the different rules that govern both mm -hmm. and to what degree would you prefer 
state by state solutions or clarity is probably the better word versus maybe just one regulator, whether it be the CFTC or the SEC, or maybe a new creation of Washington uh, to be the sole regulator of everything this space touches. Would well, that would that make things easier, or do you, do you think the innovation on a state by state basis is beneficial? Yes, I, I challenge you to find a company that will prefer a state by state regulatory um, patchwork versus something that's more unified and clear. However, the states do have a very important role to play in this system. You know, they have an important mandate to protect the consumers in their state, and we certainly respect and, and value the position that those regulators hold and will continue to work with them um, at every level of government that's necessary. But there is, you know, some attraction, I'm sure, in uh, most companies to the idea of a more unified, clear, consistent regulatory scheme. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you think about the landscape, we often think that it's opaque. There's a lack of clarity, especially around what some of these assets are mm -hmm. and how they should be regulated. What progress has been, been made to remedying that state? Well, the regulatory climate is emerging. I think everyone would agree on that. But there has been a lot of improvement over the last few years. Just a few years ago in the space, there were still some very simplistic conversations happening with regulators that didn't go much further than defining the basic lexicon. There is now very impressively deep knowledge at the federal regulatory level, at the SEC, at the CFTC, Treasury, congressional staff. All of these federal regulators have designated teams working on crypto issues now, as you know, and uh, the New York DFS just appointed a deputy executive superintendent for innovation who's learning very fast and is very smart. Um, and like I said, both South Dakota and Wyoming have really established themselves as experts. So the regulatory conversations are starting to move, I think, in the right direction away from some of the early unfair questions about whether or not this technology was being used for criminal purposes and on to more important questions like, how does the United States remain competitive? Um, how do we grapple with the implications of a lot of this technology moving to Europe and Asia? These are the foundational questions that regulators now understand are important, and I'm heartened by everyone paying attention to them. At Anchorage, has there ever been a conversation to relocate the business or parts of the business abroad as a result of the thorny regulatory state here in the U.S.? So, you know, th there's a desire, obviously, to serve clients that are not in the United States, just like any other American company. But we're a U.S. company and we're not leaving the United States. Are there any products specifically that you would have wanted to launch but the United States regulatory environment would have made that difficult? Well, you know, certainly I think there were things um, that we and other companies could be moving faster on. But I think that most entrepreneurs in this space are going to have to accept that things are moving slower than many of us might like. What are like. some of those things? So, you know, I think that one of the common refrains is to talk about how 
defining what is or is not a security could use a little bit more clarity. There are also some tax issues, as you know, that could use a little bit more clarity. But whenever people talk about the unclarity in these areas, the first thing I will say is put yourselves in the shoes of these regulators, especially in places like uh, FinCEN, where the the mantle they carry, the obligation they have is to not only protect the U.S. and global financial system, but in the case of FinCEN, protect us from terrorism. These are big, important duties. And if you had them, if they were your obligation, you would probably want to be fairly sure of every step you were taking and also move a little bit slowly. So I have a lot of sympathy for regulators in the face of criticism that things are not going fast enough. I think there is an argument to be made, though, that there is clarity on the security front, right? If you were to ask some folks down at the SEC, they might say, well, it's very clear. You have the Howey test. Mm -hmm. Check all the boxes. If you check the boxes, your security. If it looks like a security, quacks like a security, then it is. What more would we need? So... The SEC's guidance has been very helpful to the crypto community in answering a lot of these questions. You're, you're very right. I think what we lack is continued and public application of these factors. You know, in our common law system in America, one of the ways that we understand what the law is, is to see judges repeatedly apply it to cases that seem familiar to us. And then the contours of law become more obvious. Not enough time has passed for that to happen with respect to the Howey test and crypto. And I think that is uh, the core of some of the difficulty that a lot of companies are facing as they understand what is or is not a security. And when the implications for misstepping are pretty substantial, um, you know, it just makes it even more difficult to navigate. There haven't been enough cases in which you have a provider, a custodian, an exchange listing what would be a security, possibly getting sued, going to court, and then seeing that court process play out. Right. There hasn't I, been enough of that. Is that what you're saying? I, I'm not suggesting we need more enforcement action, certainly. That's definitely not what I'm intending to say. But um, but the absence of, of them does make it harder to understand what the law is or is not. You know, and there's this thing um, in First Amendment jurisprudence that we call the chilling effect, that when the law seems vague or unclear, people just stay 30 miles away from it. And that's not healthy for our democracy in the case of the First Amendment. And it's not you know, very helpful for our um, entrepreneurship in the crypto context. Mm -hmm. to, to what degree do you think that chilling effect has trickled down into larger investors who might be wary of, of touching assets, which may or may not be securities? Certainly, it's had an effect on more um, traditional investors getting into the space. I think both that and some of the lingering effects of, um, you know, 2016, 2017 are affecting those types of investors as well. But um, I think that uh, it's only going to take time and those investors will be in the space as well. Like I said, I think that those of us working in this space just need to be patient the regulators are getting up to speed at a pretty fast clip and anticipate, you know, I anticipate that we will see more and more guidance coming out of the federal regulators, especially. One thing that's been on their mind, um, certainly in 2019, was Facebook's Leaper project, which Anchorage is a participant in. 
there are a lot of arguments floating around out there in the crypto space about it its design possibly fitting it into the category of a security or an exchange traded fund or a, a mutual fund of some sort. What's your view on that? So as you know, there continue to be conversations between the Libra Association and regulators around the world. Um, Anchorage is very committed to this project. I should just say that at the outset, we really believe in its capacity to change the world, to increase financial inclusion. And I also want to defend the idea that anything right now is going wrong. Um, this is exactly how you would anticipate any complicated world-changing project would land. There was always going to be a really long conversation with regulators that was going to take a while to work through. And, you know, we for one are very committed to seeing this through to the very last question. And whether um, it's FINMA or FinCEN or Treasury or any other regulator, I think we'll get to the end of these questions to the satisfaction of regulators. That is to say, we will find out at some point from someone whether or not it might be structured as a fund of some sort. We will get to what the answer is and comply. What do you think the answer is? I think that that is, is not yet clear. Um, I think there are a lot of conversations yet to be had and, and a lot of people willing to roll up their sleeves and have them. That kind of seems like the case for so many, so many things in this space, right? It does. Um, what, where have you seen a similar question resolved where, you know, the answer wasn't clear as to what exactly this is or would be regulated as, and now we have a better understanding. Well, I can think you can look to other areas of tech to answer that question. Um, you know, when Uber hit the streets of San Francisco, you know, more than 10 years ago now, people didn't know what to make of it. People didn't know how it should be regulated. Is this a taxi? Is it some sort of illegal hailing service? Is it something that we should regulate out of existence? And the answer was largely, you know what, this actually adds pretty significant value to people's lives. And we're going to figure out a way to incorporate it into the way cities do business. And the same has been the case with Airbnb and lots of other companies in the tech space. And I, and I think the same will be the case with crypto as well. The difficulty um, that the crypto industry has faced, which wasn't necessarily true with Uber and Airbnb, is just that it's hard to understand. It's not very approachable for consumers and they can't immediately see how it will improve their day-to-day -day existence like Airbnb or Uber. So we in the industry have some work to do and have to really demonstrate what that consumer value is. And then a lot of this will get easier. To what degree do you think there will be um, examples of maybe Facebook pushing the barrier, so to speak? The two examples you gave, Lyft or rather Uber, but in the same sort of camp and Airbnb, um, they've run into many different hurdles with regulators for some of the ways they've operated from state governments to local governments to to nations. Um, do you see a similar thing playing out? Well, every industry and company will have its ongoing challenges, and I wouldn't expect 
Uber or Airbnb or the crypto industry to be any different. There will always be new questions that need to be answered. But recall back in 2008, 2009, there were real questions about whether ride sharing and home sharing were going to be things that we would continue using mm -hmm. or whether they would be regulated out of existence. And one question that has been emphatically answered is, um, will these companies continue to exist? And the answer is absolutely yes. They add value to people's lives. And you know they'll have to be sanded down at the edges a little bit and we'll have to make sure that we comply with the law as it's written and as it's written in the future, but the technology itself is not going away. Let's pivot a slight bit and, and focus more on, on Anchorage itself. Anchorage um, offers custody for 22, according to the website, uh, cryptocurrency assets. What does the process look like around determining whether or not something's a, a security? There, There's that, uh, the crypto rating scale that sort of helps us determine that. Why list anything that's not a, well, now I'm going to sound confused, a, a completely, no question, not a security? Why take the chance, I, I suppose? So there are multiple reviews we go through in deciding whether or not to list an asset. Um, it begins with a technical review. Can we safely custody this asset? Can we safely do business with this asset? Um, is there market demand for this asset? Um, do people want to custody it with us? Um, do we have the bandwidth to add this asset to our asset support list? And then we review compliance issues and legal issues. We want to make sure that we can comply with our obligations under the Bank Secrecy Act, and we want to make sure that we can comply with any other law that might apply to. Is there anything um, about this asset that would give us pause, essentially? That's interesting. Um, we so do what, 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 focusing on that, what is something, you know, generic crypto asset A, um, might have a certain feature that would give you pause with regards to maybe the Bank Secrecy Act, like more specifically, what what are some of those things that could trigger um, a closer examination of that? So, you know, we might examine the stability of the network. Um, could the assets disappear? Um, do we expect there to be multiple forks that would make us um, reluctant to uh, support this asset because it's going to be technically difficult? Or is there any reason why we may not be able to KYC, um, that's know your customer, or um, review assets and transactions from an AML standpoint? Those are the important questions that we asked before we legally decide whether or not something is a sustainable asset for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's separate from the question of whether or not this thing might be a security. Right. So the the question of whether or not something is a security, um, we participate in the Crypto Ratings Council, which um, I know everyone is familiar with. So this is a consortium of companies that has gotten together and put together a framework to try to determine whether or not something resembles a security. It, uh, it has been a pretty important to growing up of the industry to have this consortium functioning as a, as a body that is self-regulating in a way. I think especially in the financial industry, um, it's just a marker of adulthood. 
and and one that I hope more and more companies will join because the framework has been a really useful way to look at each asset. It, it essentially unpacks each of the Howey factors and tries to put it through a repeatable framework so that um, if two different lawyers in two different places in the country apply the same framework, they will ideally land at the same score. And we've we've roughly found that to be true. Mm -hmm. And so back to my 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 previous question why support any asset that doesn't fit all of those boxes so i mean when we support an asset we are comfortable that we are legally able to support the asset um you know we don't want to to cross the line obviously no responsible company wants to do that but we also want to engage in business to the full capacity of the law um, as I said before, it's important not to fall victim to this chilling mentality. Yeah. What what would happen if, um, or what would Anchorage have to do if one day, you know, someone at the SEC, Jay Clayton, rolls out of bed and decides to, to deem all of these assets, aside from a few, as, as being securities? Do you, you know, halt support? Do you take them to court? Do you um, get a new type of license? Like, how would that So I would be work? more worried about the industry as a whole than about Anchorage in particular. Um, that would obviously yeah, sure. be yeah, pretty catastrophic yeah. for all of us. So my primary concern um, would be, uh, you know, killing our, our industry in the cradle. Um, and I assume we and other groups would activate and try to undo whatever damage was caused by that. But, you know, that, that would be a pretty catastrophic situation for all of us. Um, if, if everything that we deal in is, is determined not to be everything. a security. Not, maybe not Bitcoin or Bitcoin cash and ether, but right. maybe something like, you know, Tezos or zero X or Numeri. Well, in, in any situation like that, one of the first things you'd see is a lot of industry collaboration um, and a lot of very open industry discussion about how to handle the decision um, and how we might react to it. One of the great things about this industry is that while we're all competing with one another, there is a lot of conversation about important regulatory topics. And it's actually been really heartening to see how companies collaborate in places like the Blockchain Association or the Crypto Ratings Council or any of the other industry organizations. What issues do you think are top of mind at this moment for folks in your your role in this industry? Um, so, you know, we, we've talked about what is the security, you know, continued application of the Howey test and making sure we understand truly what it means for crypto assets, tax issues, um, especially as they apply to staking. Um, that's an emerging issue, obviously, that is familiar to many of your listeners. Um, you know, at some point, uh, further understanding of the SEC's plan for broker-dealers will be helpful. These these are some of the things that are important to the industry, I think, mm -hmm. among lots of other issues. The SEC's plans around broker-dealers, how could that impact um, Anchorage and other firms? So there are many firms that have had uh, broker-dealer applications pending for some time. Yeah, and we're seeing some come, come across the finish line. Yes, um, thankfully some are coming across the finish line, which is great news, and I expect to see more of that in the future. I think that's just one area where a lot of us are excited to see progress. Would Anchorage need a broker-dealer to operate so, um, as a current So not for our 
present activities, we have our qualified custodian status through our South Dakota Trust Company, but certainly, you know, it's our aspiration to to someday have that federal status as well. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is it important? Well, um, you know, there's there's much more flexibility inside of a federally regulated broker dealer. You can actually broker crypto securities, which you cannot really do inside of many other regulatory forms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what other flexibility does it offer? You know, there may be some institutional investors that are just more comfortable with that form. It's mm-hmm. very familiar to them. It's something that they're used to in the legacy space and and they're attracted to it for that reason. Just because it's more similar to what they're used to dealing with. Sure. I mean, uh, there's there's going to be familiarity with um, with fin- FINRA examiners. There's comfort with the rules that apply to the space. There's an understanding of them. Um, there's just a... Uh, familiarity in dealing with them that I think will will make a lot of investors feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think that it will definitely bring new investors to the space. Yeah, it's interesting. When, when you look out New Year 2020, what are, we've talked about the tax um, issues still being there, the security uh, question hanging over the space, but is there anything else that you're excited about or think will come to fruition in 2020 that will have uh, broader implications for sure. Okay. 2020 predictions. So this one, maybe I'm not excited about, maybe it's a bit of excitement and a little bit of dread. China's going to roll out a digital currency um, and, or at least it's going to become abundantly obvious that they're very close to doing so. And I think there will be a pretty fast realization in Washington that we need to be thinking about these things in a really serious way. And as you know, there was an initiative announced just this last week to to push the idea of a digital dollar, which mm-hmm. is really exciting, I think, to many people, especially the lawyers in the industry. But I predict that um, an announcement from China will spur some speed among regulators uh, in the United States and hopefully really uh, start a conversation about how we are losing our ability to be competitive internationally. Mm-hmm. Triggering uh, a conversation on whether or not cryptocurrency companies are at a disadvantage relative to their peers is definitely something that I think a lot of firms would like to see. Uh, and we kind of saw that to a degree with Libra, right? Because everyone wanted to know what this was, how it is different from Bitcoin or other digital assets um, on some areas of of the political spectrum. It was antagonized um, or made them antagonistic towards the space. But I think you certainly saw a group of legislators being able to delineate these things from one another. What do you think um, is the worst case scenario of uh, China coming online, Facebook coming online in terms of regulatory pushback? Um, Well, I think the worst case scenario following um, a digital Chinese currency is that we don't realize how important it is to react to it. You know, every 
other week you see a new article in the New York Times or the Washington Post about the infrastructure work that China is doing internationally to increase its presence and power. And you can guarantee that a digital currency coming from China is going to be used for exactly the same purpose and could um, you know, contribute to dethroning the US dollar of its importance internationally. So keeping our eye on that sort of threat is incredibly important. And I, I applaud the people that are really trying to work on this issue in Washington and raise its importance. Do you talk to folks from your old world about the space and try to tap into their mind about what they're thinking? I do. Um, you know, I, it, I think most people in Silicon Valley will tell you that culturally people in Washington are about three years behind people in San Francisco as far as understanding what trends and uh, new technologies mean. But and as I was saying before, I've been really heartened by the increasing awareness of these issues among regulators. I, you know, you, you mentioned before some of the, the outcry from members of Congress following the Libra announcement. But there were also some supportive statements. Not sure if you saw it, but uh, Senator Mike Rounds from South Dakota, actually, um, wrote a letter to us Mm -hmm. and released it publicly commending our participation in the Libra Association and really trying to call out that we shouldn't be so afraid of this new technology and that if we didn't try to understand it better and really make some faster progress in the crypto space. We were going to be putting ourselves at a pretty significant national security disadvantage. And that's the issue, I think, that China's is most the acute big, here. Scary word China is DC. the big, scary word in D.C., um, and it's not without good reason. <laughs> um, they, they are a growing superpower, and we have to have uh, a pretty serious plan on how we're going to come to terms with this over the next five 10 years. And there are many components of this that are certainly outside of my area of expertise. But one thing I am certain of is that the national security implications of letting the crypto industry go to Europe and Asia will be profound and almost impossible to undo. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And what happens? um, You are seeing a divide between different products. and you have CME backed launching different types of derivatives while at the same time FTX and BitMEX and Binance are growing as non-US domiciled uh, companies. Is there a fear that a anchorage of the East could come about and, and possibly chip away at your dominance or sure or your I, position rather you know there's always the possibility that we'll face competition internationally from companies that exist in clearer regulatory regimes but i actually think that's the the weaker version of the argument that i'm trying mm-hmm. to make what i'm saying is imagine a future where the biggest most important infrastructure companies globally are located outside of the united states mm-hmm. imagine today if google and Facebook um, were not located in America. Um, Grapple with the national security implications of that because they are pretty significant. And that is the future that we are careening to currently if if we don't understand the importance of this technology and start inviting it into the United States, not just tolerating it, but inviting it. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a a really strong point and, and a great point to end on for our listeners. Katie, 
thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you very we much for having your me. Time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy.